0: talk show for all things automotive from the latest news to the greatest views and the biggest names in rolling iron your host is brett hatfield freelance auto journalist senior auction analyst for sports car market magazine and american car collector magazine writer and editor of readthedriven.com and owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars get behind the wheel of an hour of car talk starting right now in the driven radio show Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday, Driven Radio. Happy birthday to us. Hey, today is Driven Radio's first birthday. We made it a year. Uh, We've had a ton of great guests, covered amazing and sometimes hilarious stories, and we've gotten to live out all of our car guy fantasies along with a, a, a fantastic group of dedicated listeners. So thank you for sharing some of your time every week with Driven Radio. We love being able to talk cars and hopefully have a few laughs. Uh, My name is Brett Hatfield. I'm here without my usual co-host, Shelby expert Vern and I am here with my engineer, Matthew Hickman, uh, and our special guests tonight. Uh, One is a repeat offender to Driven Radio, Mr. Ped Watt. Ped, you you can't talk to people if you're that far away from the microphone, dude. (laughs) I I can talk to them as far away from the microphone as I want. Yeah, but they'll never be able to hear your lovely dulcet tones. I think my volume's perfectly fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for arguing. That's is why I invite you. And also our special guest, Drew Casper, curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection. In studio with us, Drew. Thanks for being on Driven Radio.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Uh, We're happy you're here, and we'll cover that uh, more of that a little later. Uh, A year ago, I started this show that was originally called Road Muscle Radio uh, with a friend of mine and my mentor, Mark Groves. Mark's a 30-plus year radio veteran, and he does production for a nationwide radio group uh, that has an office here in town and he really spoiled me right out of the gate because we had access to a real radio production studio and uh, all of his experience and with that experience and background he showed me how pros do this and evidently not well enough because I still don't do it that well but we're trying Uh, he showed me how to run a show and how to conduct interviews and he set a pretty high standard for us and I can't thank Mark enough for everything he taught me and everything he uh, tried to convey to me and I hope to have Mark back on the show sometime. Mark, if you're listening, thanks for everything, pal. We made it a year. Uh, In January of this year, Mark had a bit of a change with his job and his workload essentially tripled and he had to back away from the show. He just didn't have the time to dedicate to it. So we had already been looking for another co-host and uh, then we had Vern Estes on the show as a guest and Vern was just a natural at it. And when he was done with his interview and he's walking out of the studio. Mark and I both looked at each other and go, that's the guy. And I ran down the stairs and caught Vern in the parking lot and asked him if he'd be interested in co-hosting a podcast. And Vern said, uh, yeah, that was fun. I don't think he fully realized what he was getting himself into. Uh, But we eventually had to leave the radio studios because rent on a professional radio studio is extraordinary. And it was more than I could swing. And uh, we moved to uh, a couple of smaller studios in the west bottoms and then finally settled with our new studios in overland park Uh, so we've been there have been some growing pains and learning curves and we're still learning how to make the show better every week we've been fortunate to have the have the show grow to uh, grow our listenership and we've had some amazing guests on driven radio and i am going to run through them real quickly because i want to thank everybody who's been on uh ward morgan was our first guest he owns the Midwest Dream Car Collection, and he's Drew's boss, Uh, so next time you see your boss, tell him I said hey and thank you. Uh, Doug Campbell of Hillbank Motorsports, Rob Pitts uh, of the Hot Rods and Happy Hour radio show, uh, John Klinger, Vice President Public Relations of Haggerty Insurance, Jack Wallace, owner of Vintage Vets KC, Amanda Gutierrez, the Vice President of Auto Restoration Program at McPherson College, Jim Pickering, Managing Editor at Sports Car Market and American Car Collector, Mike Musto, host of the House of Muscle, uh, Cor Corbin Goodwin, the uh, builder of the Zero F's Given RX-7 and the Trolls Royce. Corbin is a fun guy. Uh, Casey Maxson of the Historic Vehicle Association. Matt Farah of the Smoking Tire Podcast. Matt also had me on his show, and that's how I got a little bit of feel for the kind of show I wanted to have, so can't thank Matt enough. Uh, Dana Forrester, a famous watercolor artist, paints lots of really beautiful Corvettes. Uh, Chris DeGancey, one of the funniest people I've ever had on the Show Chris has a really uh, amazing sense of humor. He's also the founder of the National Hearst and Ambulance Association, and he's been on Vinwiki an awful lot. Uh, Freddie Hernandez Tavarish, uh of his own YouTube fame. Uh, Ed Bolian, founder of Vinwiki. Mike Lenner, founder of Na- of Car Show Nationals. Uh, Doug Tabbit, owner of Switch Cars, and also of Vinwiki. Uh, Rick Hunter of Hot Rod Express. And Gary and Muffy Bennett, uh, who work for Richie Brothers and Lake. Austin. Auctions. Ped Watt in studio, Mister Ped. Thank you for being on the show. I made number twenty. I love that. Well, that's uh, that's where you were in the week list. Uh-huh. Uh, nice. I'm, not, I'm number forty three down there. You'd be lucky if you make the list again, buddy. Tom Strongman, auto editor for the Kansas City Star. Uh, Rennie Doyle, master detailer and head of the Detail Mafia. Frank Meekum of Meekum Auctions. Dana Alcazar of uh, owner of Russo and Steel Car Auctions. Uh, Luke Channel. He's a repeat offender here on Driven Radio. He. He's a McPherson College Auto Restoration Program Associate Professor. John Viviani John Viviani of the No Driving Gloves Podcast. Seth Burgett of uh, Gateway Bronco. Uh, Vern Estes, our own Vern Estes, uh, of Vernon Classics. Rob Ferretti of Super Speeders and Gotham Dream Cars Exotic Car Rental. Rich Posey of Big Oak Garage and No Driving Gloves. Richard Kitzmiller of Scarab Motorsports. Ed Golden of Golden Customs. Tyler Hoover of Hoovy's Garage and YouTube fame. Keith Martin... Uh, my boss at Sports Car Market Magazine, John Peterson, president of the American Panhard Club, Craig Jackson of Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, J.P. Emerson, who's an auto journalist friend of mine. J.P. is a fun guy. Matt Wojwad of Auto Obsession Detailing KC, Corey Pratt of Craving Cars, Kyle Smith of Haggerty Insurance in the Great Race, Butch Pappen and Vrenny Fernandez, both of the Kansas City Auto Museum, and last but surely not least, Tim McCarthy of Hushmat and Zycote. Thank you one and all for being on Driven Radio this past year. You helped make the show what it is and we can't tell you thank you enough. So, this week our special guest, Drew, you drug your dad all the way here with you. I did. uh, Which, that's pretty cool. That's neat. I don't think my old man would go three hours to do an interview with me. Uh, Drew is the curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, He's going to talk to us about the museum, the exhibits, how he came to be the curator, and what it's like to be a walking talking miracle and yes hey, you are and you got to know that by now uh all this and much more is coming up on driven radio coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. Our special guest this week is Drew Casper, curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection. Drew, I've been bugging you for a while. Thanks for finally coming in for your interview, pal. Welcome to Driven Radio. Thanks for Appreciate having it. me. Um, so i want to jump right into this. What first got you interested in cars?
1: Uh, when I was a young kid, my dad used to watch Magnum PI quite a bit. <laughs> and uh, I really liked the Ferrari 308 that was on that show. And... Uh, And then my parents bought me a... Ferrari 458 ride at Kansas Speedway. Oh, I thought for a second you were going to say they bought you a 308. <laughs> <laughs> no, they they bought me a ride in a Ferrari 458. And so I went to Kansas Speedway and I got to drive around for a while while I was 18 years old. Oh, so, cool. Yeah.
0: I haven't ridden in one of those yet. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it was pretty cool.
0: All right. So uh, going from a love of cars to your current employer, uh, how'd you meet Ward? How'd you meet Ward Morgan?
1: Um, My mom was working at Civic Plus, and uh, she, she told me that he was looking for a Lamborghini and uh, I knew he wanted one, and so I kept sending her wait, wait, wait videos. Which Lamborghini? Uh, an Aventador is what he wanted. <sighs> okay, that's so a, that's a serious car. <laughs> so I kept sending her videos of cars that he should get instead of the Aventador. Um, <laughs> no, you're wrong. And uh, and so he hired he hired me um, eventually. Really? And well, uh, now, and when he initially hired you, what did he hire you to do? Uh, He hired me to be an intern, so technically I started because I saw a Lamborghini Palm Beach truck in Manhattan. and uh, That's got to be fairly rare. It was pretty rare, yeah. (laughs) And so I texted my mom and I was like, is this Ward's truck? And she said, yes, it's his truck but it's not a Lamborghini. It was a 4G GT. Oh, okay. So he got a new 4G GT that that day. I think it, I've seen that car. Is it Titanium? It's Titanium. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's a pretty car. It is pretty. Okay, and uh, I'm guessing you're, you've driven that car too. I have driven it, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna make a lot of people jealous tonight. <laughs> so uh, you become an intern. What were you doing as an intern? What were you doing for him?
1: Um, I was helping him find cars that were at specific auctions. Mm-hmm. So basically, he'd give me a car he liked, and then I would just get online, and I would look for auctions that had that car. And What was he having you hunt for, for example? So for example, he had me hunt for a Superbird, okay. and I found him one. All right. And then he had me search for a 53 Corvette. All right. and i found him one of those as well so Wait, now were you going to these auctions or just finding them online i was just finding them online and working from home pretty okay. much and uh 53 corvette Superbird. there's got to be more there yeah there was there was more um it, he had me do a whole list of cars and and i was i was pretty sure the budget was endless at that point <laughs> those weren't cheap cars no uh was it an endless budget No, it was not. We have actually run out of of money for this year anyway. For this year. Yeah. But that
0: kind of sounds like there might be an open door for more stuff next
1: year. There could be, yeah. Okay,
0: so you are an intern for a while at what point are you promoted from intern to curator was it just that step was there anything in between
1: um he was just looking for a curator basically for his collection and so he asked me if i'd do it because he trusted my taste and he trusted my um what what i had done as an intern basically that's a pretty tremendous
0: step especially for uh, i'm going to pick on you for a second for a guy your age
1: yeah i think so a,
0: a guy who has hasn't quite finished college yet
1: i have not good grief kid
0: <laughs> that's it's pretty remarkable so tell us a little bit about the museum tell us where it is uh what it is just uh, give us a rundown
1: uh so it's in manhattan kansas and it's a pretty eclectic museum uh we have probably 60 plus cars right now and uh that's the cars we own anyway okay uh, and then we have some loaned cars as well all righty um
0: you say it's around 60 plus, with other people's cars there as well that are on loan to you uh how many cars total are in the museum Probably
1: 70 to 75,
0: I guess. That's a lot of stuff in one place. Yeah. Uh, We're speaking with uh, Drew Casper, curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection. Uh, So how much input did you have on all the cars in the museum? I mean, I'm guessing you didn't find and buy all of them. How many of them are you responsible for?
1: Uh, I'm probably responsible for 20 cars or so. That's a pretty good chunk. It is quite a bit. Ward kind of took over at the beginning when he he sort of went on a buying spree. Yeah, I was with him for part of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was fun.
0: Uh, well, yeah, the, the white Mustang Fastback, I oh, think yeah. uh, there may have been a two-beer buzz responsible for part of that. <laughs> there might be. Yeah, um, so you are responsible for probably close to a third of what's in that museum? Pretty much, yeah. Was there ever a time when your taste and his taste didn't quite match or uh, were you did you ever buy something? without getting his explicit say-so first?
1: Um, I never bought anything without his explicit say-so, mm-hmm. although he did give me some freedom. Um, so originally, my first car that I bought for the museum was a 1920 Model T snowmobile. Oh, cool. And we still have that. Yeah, and that's, that's a pretty neat car. Um, my second car was the one where Ward said, if you want to make it, or if you want to buy it, uh, go ahead and buy it. And so... I did, I decided that. Um, wow, I'll, that that seems kind of open ended, <laughs> and,
0: and almost a veiled threat at the same time.
1: <laughs> it kind of was. So I was I was abroad, and I was studying, and we bought Mario Andretti's. I was in Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. We bought Mario Andretti's Lamborghini Aventador. Oh. And he basically gave me the reins on that and said, if you want to buy it, buy it. No kidding. Yeah.
0: Has there been anything that you bought that when Ward saw it, he was less than thrilled
1: about? I think that has happened. Yeah.
0: Is there a specific car that comes to mind or?
1: Oh, I think the uh, it was the I think it was our Model T, and so we bought a Model T, and I don't think Ward loves it still, but <laughs> <laughs> it it's a it's a bit of a piece of work and it's kind of a driver car, okay, and that was kind of the goal of it was to get a car that we could drive around, sure. Sure. Um, how, when it came to setting up the museum
0: and the exhibits, how much input did you have with that?
1: I did. I did have quite a bit of input. I basically laid out the whole floor. We have just one big room, and yes. that's that's pretty much where the uh, where the museum is. Is just in a big room that used to be a grocery store, and so I kind of set it up in a way that people could experience the cars from the oldest cars we have, which was 1907, that's our oldest car, mm-hmm. and then all the way up to brand new, like 2019 stuff. So I I helped pretty much create the museum as it is. And uh, my goal was to lay the cars out in a manner that people could View the entire car and take photos of the entire car if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. So, as curator, what are your duties day to day? My duties day to day—they're pretty much researching the cars, and then I basically write the the cars, uh, the, the cars uh, magnet, the, des- the, descriptions
0: the description, the description, yeah, and the background history, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. That sort of thing, and then I also help find new cars if we need them or if we want them. what's the mag- what's the museum hunting for right now? what What's what's next on the list? Ward's talked to me a few times about it, and uh, I think the car that we'll look for next, at least from my understanding, is a Lamborghini Countach. But. That's going to be a tough find. Yeah, those uh, when all of the
0: Italian stuff went wild. Yeah, uh, around 2012 2013, uh, the Lamborghinis got weirder than anything else, and I can remember looking at those a few years back when that was an eighty thousand dollar car, and that was not that long ago. Really, and looking at them and thinking, you know. I might get there, I might get there, I might get there. And inside of a couple of years, it was a half million dollar car and uh, now I'll never get there. So (laughs) that's going to be a a tougher find for you. So you arranged all the displays, you laid out the museum uh, and you said that the museum owns about 60 of the cars that are there. Are they all on display at one time?
1: Uh, They're not all on display at the same time. We have probably five or so in the the back and sort of a storage area. Um, And then we also take people's loaned cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of makes up a percentage of the cars that we have in the collection. So if you want to loan your car, feel free to contact us and I'll get in in touch with my advisory board and they'll make a decision whether your car's got the qualifications or meets the qualifications.
0: And uh, f- that could also be translated as if you got a really nice car and you don't have enough storage space for it, loan it to a museum. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> about right. Yeah. We're speaking with Drew Casper. He's the curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to Drew about a, his near fatal crash riding in a race car and what it can only be described as a mar- miraculous discovery all that and more coming up next on driven radio back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio Studios. Uh, when we left, we were talking to Drew Casper, curator of the Midwest Dream Car Collection, about the museum and the exhibits and the cars you bought, uh, mostly with permission, and uh, all the fun stuff you're getting to do for a job. And I'm sure there's a thousand car guys out there who are just as envious as they could be, and they're going to be for about 20 more seconds. Uh on march 31st of this year drew and i both got invited to go to uh uh, heartland park topeka and do ride-alongs with guys who were racing gt cars there and i didn't feel all that hot and i kind of begged off at the last minute but drew went and i'm just gonna let you take it from there drew who did you get to ride with what
1: cars did you get to ride in uh talk about that a little bit um, so I got to start with a Porsche in the morning, a Porsche GT3 RS. and That's a, an amazing car. It was an amazing car. And I had a lot of fun in that car. And we went around the track several times. But then I got in a Corvette ZR1 and went around the track one more time. Well, one more time, which involves a few laps. Yeah, and the ZR1 was the car that I was going to ride in when I
0: got out there because, you know, Corvette guy. Uh, You're lucky you didn't. Well, you said the first lap was really great. It was great. And uh, then you guys took a break.
1: We took a break for lunch, yeah. And you got back in the car. I got back in the ZR1, and uh, all I remember was getting in it, and then us taking off, and then... I don't remember anything after that. Nothing. Nothing.
0: So, Drew's father, Dave, is here with us because he does remember what happened. And uh, he's here to help fill in the blanks and also uh, uh, talk a little bit about watching what his son went through.
2: Dave, what happened on that second lap? Well, Drew doesn't remember anymore because... Actually, his memory was erased for about two and a half to three weeks when the car impacted a uh, solid barrier at a very high rate of speed, and he was of course the passenger, and that was the side of the car that impacted, and that sent him to Stormont Vale to critical care for probably just about two weeks in, in critical care. So we're, we're going to get into the specifics of this. What were the injuries he sustained? His injuries were severe. The doctors initially didn't hold out a lot of hope for Drew's uh, recovery because his top vertebrae, the C1 vertebrae, was fractured into four separate pieces and none of which were touching each other. And the, the technical name for that injury is? It's graphic, but but it's called internal decapitation. Um, I'd never heard the term before. Yeah, neither had I. It, it, uh, people don't typically survive that injury um, no let alone regain any function um, if they do the the vertebrae was completely separated the second vertebrae was cracked yet his spinal column was intact and so were the arteries that fed his brain so it was there was hope but the doctor the neurosurgeon who met with us within an hour of our arrival at the hospital was very grim um, she didn't hold out a lot of hope for a very good recovery. He also had a traumatic brain injury. He was now. You say she was very grim. Uh, I I don't mean to be too overly graphic, but what were the odds she gave you? Um, Drew probably knows. What What did the What did the doctor?
1: It was like seventy percent die immediately, and then the thirty percent that live only fifteen percent make it through the hospital visit, and. Uh,
2: so so it
1: was a pretty slim chance.
2: Pretty yeah. fair chance you weren't gonna be doing anything again ever. Exactly. He was hooked to a ventilator. He had every possible tube imaginable stuck in his body when I arrived. And uh the the nurse that I met with originally briefed me on his situation and told me not to touch him. He was he he had been immediately put into a, a, a coma, an induced coma, so that he wouldn't move. Um, or, or react or be reactive in any way. They didn't want him to further injure himself. It so he was, it was uh, completely stabilized, immobilized. He was immobilized with a big neck collar. Um, just uh, They went on a list of his injuries that included three broken ribs, a dislocated shoulder, a broken clavicle. Um, oh the traumatic brain injury where he had sheared a lot of the axioms in your in the frontal lobe of his brain were bleeding so he had a pretty serious brain bleed um it was so what happens over the course of the next few days the following day his neurosurgeon operated and um placed two titanium rods in his neck the c1 vertebrae of course was in four pieces the c2 the second one it was cracked and so she had to go to c3 to find anything that solid she could. bone to to screw to and they put the plate in the base of his skull and reattached his head basically to his body at that point <clears throat> unbelievable and so
0: they they get that part of him stabilized that with the titanium rods
2: what about everything else they weren't even concerned with his lower extremities i mean he, he showed no movement because of the coma they didn't really do a lot of work To the lower part of his body they they were seriously only concerned with his neck and and stabilizing his neck to his head again they they weren't even really doing anything with the traumatic brain injury other than some medication so once they had that surgery done and they came to you what was the
0: discussion that was had
2: um actually the the neurosurgeon was went from very grim the day before the first day, the day of the accident, uh, to when she came up on the elevator after the surgery, the doors opened and she was smiling and happy, and she she had done a complete 180 from from anything we'd seen from her previously, and she was excited that the surgery went well, everything was reattached and he shouldn't require any more surgeries at that point then they could focus on his traumatic brain injury and his dislocated shoulder and and uh the broken clavicle and everything else the ribs and
0: i'm gonna ask the obvious question uh what's going through your mind
2: and your wife's mind at that time it was uh i don't know how we could have gone through anything more traumatic um, in those first two days it, sitting across the table from a neurosurgeon who's telling you your son may not make it through the day let alone ever walk again she pretty much said straight out that he'll, he'll never be the same person um, it was it was short of death it was about, about as, a half a step above that that's I, where
0: we were at I can't even imagine so what happens over the next week or so uh,
2: while you're there I spent the night with him after his surgery that night and, um, of course, didn't sleep a wink. I just watched to see if he would move. Sure. I was looking for any sign of movement in his body to see if, you know, we were, we were concerned, obviously, that he had uh, enough damage to his spinal cord that he would be paralyzed or not be able to function at all, really, from the neck down. And at some point around 3 in the morning, I saw him... Twitch a little, and move his left arm. Oh, cool! And I—I I mean, that's all I needed. I—I I hadn't, of course, given up any hope, but that's the—those are the kind of things that we looked for every day from then on. Small, small steps, tiny little increases in mobility, and any kind of uh, reaction. And during this time,
0: uh, did they move Drew to Nebraska before or after?
2: At what point did they bring him out of the car? after the surgery his coma medication was discontinued but he didn't show a lot of movement even even days afterwards he he pretty much just laid there and and maybe after a week we could see him start to lift his left arm a little bit and try to move move his left leg but um from all the signs that we were getting, it looked to, to us like the right side of his body might be paralyzed. There was there was really a tiny bruise. It was all they could detect on his spinal column from the impact of the crash that broke the top vertebrae so he there was a chance that you know that it was damaged inside and there was no way to know that until he would come to well he didn't really ever come to for at least a week to 10 days to the point where he opened his eyes and, and gave us any kind of a sign that he was in there and when he finally did open his eyes well at that point um we could tell that there was some brain activity you know and uh the and the, and the tests showed that there was there was f- full electrical function from his brain to his extremities um so it was it was glorious to know that that he wasn't going to be paralyzed but yet he still wasn't moving much other than his left hand which is not his dominant hand okay and at what point uh was the decision made to move him to uh the facility in Nebraska I think after 12 or 13 days, um, the critical care unit in Topeka realized they were pretty much at the end of everything they could do, and so he was moved by ambulance uh, to to Madonna Rehabilitation Hospital in Lincoln, and that's where they specialize in um, uh, spinal cord injuries and uh, traumatic brain injuries, which is exactly what Drew's case included. And once he was moved and he was awake, what was his progress like then? Once he got to Madonna, after a week or so of little or no movement, all of a sudden things began to turn around in his favor really quickly. Um, the, the physical therapist there mo- worked with him every day and, and got him to a point where they could finally stand him up on his own. And the first day he... St- they they could stand him up. Yes, prior to that he'd been flat on his back in bed, not really moving anything to his left and, arm.
0: And how much time are we talking about? From the time of the accident until the first time they
2: stood him up? Probably close to three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. (laughs) He was pretty much on his back for the first three to three and a half weeks. And then one day they decided, okay, we're going to at least put him on his feet and try to see if he can support himself with his legs. And he really didn't have a lot of of, uh, strength muscle tone ability to really control those leg muscles they just held him up on his feet and he yeah, stood there that, on his own but that is still so fast for yeah. turnaround uh we'll be
0: back uh for our final segment here on driven radio with uh dave casper and drew casper uh we're going to talk a little bit about drew's recovery and what a re- what a remarkable comeback you've had from this all that and more coming up next on driven radio Welcome back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, When we left, we were talking to Dave Casper and uh, his son Drew about Drew's horrific accident and uh, his subsequent recovery. Now, uh, they've moved him to Nebraska, and it's been about three weeks. You said they stood him up on his feet, but they were kind of just holding him there, standing up. Correct. Uh, But after that, things
2: started to speed up quite a bit. They did. He he uh i think within a day or two of him standing he was walking around the entire hospital i mean he he literally walked his way back to his room the second day that they had him two days after they had him standing up now they
0: moved you
2: and i I, i'm
0: curious when you came out of the uh the coma uh what you're thinking what you're feeling
1: do are you cognizant of what has happened or did you have to ask uh, I had to ask to understand where I was and why and uh, my first memory when I woke up from the coma was basically was Tiger Woods winning the Masters <laughs> and I I always knew that would happen and so I was glad that it happened okay so.
0: but when you woke up in the hospital and I assume your parents were there when you woke up were they yeah they were there uh did you look at them and, and say what's going on
1: yeah I, I asked them why it or what had happened and uh and they sort of explained that there was a crash at the track. And I just remembered leaving the track that day, but obviously it was an, an ambulance. Yeah. And that's not what I remember happening, so.
0: Okay, so what what are you thinking when they tell you, hey, you're in the hospital and you've had all these things happen to you and you've had surgery and where's your head?
1: Um, I was pretty surprised and pretty taken back by it. And uh, I wasn't sure what to expect from my neck pretty much at that point. So my, um, my cervical collar was kind of hurting my neck. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I kept pulling that off and they kept telling me, you need to keep that on. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. And, uh, I, I just remember doing that a lot. so, so
0: they get you to Nebraska, and they in you know, a pretty in pretty short order. They stand you up, and then your dad says you're walking all over. Uh, how are you feel? I, you got to be feeling beat up after all of that. Just enlighten us. Uh, we're, how, what were you feeling? What were you experiencing? Uh, I'm just. I, I'm betting not too many people ever have that happen and get to talk about it. it-
1: yeah, um, my mom calls it growing from zero to 22 in three and a half months. And that's pretty much what it is. So I basically had to learn to walk again and eat again and, um, and everything like that. So, uh, experiencing, I just did, uh, I mean, I guess walking around the hospital, I was feeling pretty beat up. Yes. But, uh, there was definitely a lot that was still on my side and, was keeping me going in the right direction what did you find uh difficult as you were relearning how to do things um i kept on veering to the right so that was kind of what was hurting everyone was that i would walk to the right too much and um and i don't know if that's because my right side of my body wasn't really working correctly or what but so i kept running into the walls and stuff on the right side and um that was that was sort of the problem
0: as they're watching you stand up start walking around start doing things start learning things again what are the doctors saying about your progress uh
1: i think they were all a bit surprised at my progress um i think they were really taken aback by what i had done in such a short period and that's really what the thing is they i'm sure they see injuries like mine every day at madonna but
2: uh, i don't think they see recovery as fast as my recovery and Dave, what are you and your wife thinking while you're watching all this? We were ecstatic, obviously. Things were really progressing fast. He went from speaking only one word answers, responses, to one day I walked in the room and he said, Hey, Dad, how's it going? Uh, (laughs) um, And I was only gone for 48 hours. He'd gone from only a delayed response with, with a single word, answer to, Hey dad, how's it going? And, and then just speaking in volumes, he was just drew again.
1: Was there something that triggered that drew or is it, you just woke up and you had stuff to say and you could say it? Um, I just woke up and I think I had stuff to say so I could say it and I said it. So (laughs) that's incredible. So, uh, how long were you at Madonna? I was at Madonna for about three months, I think. Okay. Pretty close. Yeah. And, uh, As you're there, you
0: said you were walking to the right. What else was difficult to learn how to do? I mean, this sounds like it affected both gross motor skills and fine motor skills and just about everything you would think to do, but... Also, people who were listening and myself included are thinking you had your brain detached from your spine, yeah, and you had a lot of your frontal lobe uh, the the synapses damaged and good grief, how could you come back so fast?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know what was driving me, but every time my friends would come and visit, it seemed like that was when my major breakthroughs would happen. Really? So my friends would come and well, I Was it I just to the stimulus of seeing people? I think so. Yeah. And and sort of that is what really drove me was my friends kept coming back, and I just kept getting better.
0: Now, Dave, you and your wife have got to be watching this, and. Uh, I, I I'm sure you're thrilled about it,
2: but there's were you a little bit amazed? We were amazed, as were the doctors and the therapists, and the the other patients and their families were amazed. They actually coined the phrase "miracle boy" early on in his uh, recovery, and that stuck right away because they don't see those kind of recoveries that quickly. Even at a facility like that with 400 beds, there's a lot of people in there with a lot of injuries, and of course every injury is different. But the recovery for Drew was but everything seems so extensive with Drew. It was. It was. He had a he had a very serious injury that he recovered from very quickly, and uh, there's really hardly any explanation other than not just one, but a multitude of miracles, and a lot. He had a. We had a lot of support. He had a lot of support. We had a lot of support. We had thousands of people uh, following us on Facebook all of a sudden and um, the, well, out, the outpouring was tremendous. It,
0: you, you made the news more than once. <laughs> Uh, And there were a a lot of people who uh, knew Drew uh, from the museum and from car stuff. The car community is is full of amazing people. And I can't tell you how many people I heard from uh, just, hey, how's he doing? Uh, By the way, my mom wants to give you a big hug. Um, Now, the accident was on March 31st. Yes. When did they
2: release you from Madonna? Uh, I think it was May twenty second, June twenty seventh. June twenty seventh is when you oh. walked out of Madonna. Was your last? Okay, day. that was my
1: last day of outpatient. Right. Okay. I got out of inpatient sometime in May. Right. Late May. So, so you were just going back for outpatient after
0: yeah. the tail part of May, and they released you completely. Uh, at the end of june yes are you back at work i'm back at work yes uh part-time full-time part-time right now okay and uh you know we talked you're still doing a little bit of outpatient rehab
1: i am yeah so i'm doing my my therapy uh physical therapy in manhattan and i'm also working on some memory skills and uh working on problem solving
0: okay anything really hang you up very much or
1: um i'm having Some trouble with fine motor skills, so like writing and typing and well your dad
0: said your handwriting was never that great anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't. (laughs) Drew, we are so happy you're with us and really amazed with your progress. Uh thanks so much for being on the show. Dave, thank you for being here with us too. And uh I look forward to being back in the museum so I can harass you more. Uh Drew Casper, thanks for being on Driven Radio and Oh my goodness, I I can't I can't even believe you turned that around so quickly. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for spending your time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our audience. You can find us online at readthedriven.com, follow us on Facebook at Driven Radio Show.com, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I'm Brett Hatfield for uh, our absent co host, Veronestis, Matthew Hickman, Ped Watt, and Miracle Boy Drew Casper, his father, Dave Casper. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio.